Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. In this repeat episode from our archives, this was first published a couple years ago, my guest is Tiffany Bova. Tiffany's the global growth evangelist for Salesforce. She says she considers herself a, quote, recovering sales rep, unquote. Uh, unfortunately, I think I'm a lifer. But in any event, she believes that her, the distance that she's has from sales, from the day-to-day selling, enables her to see more clearly the challenges facing sellers and buyers alike. So among the topics we discuss in this episode are, well, we start with buying and why selling has always been more about the buyer than the seller, which I completely agree with. We're also going to explore why the funnel is no longer an applicable metaphor for the buying process and talk about the four parallel streams buyers actually work through to arrive at a purchase decision. Lots of good stuff. So all that and much, much more. Before we get to Tiffany, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. When was the last time you were in Hawaii? Uh, not not uh, so recently, unfortunately. I, yeah. you know, I piled on uh, 300 and about 340,000 flying miles last year. So Whoa. Um, yeah, I had, I had very little time to sort of make it home. <laughs> wow. That is a, that is a big year by any, any measure. Yes. I might have to think back my, to my big years. My when I just, ever. Yeah. That was my biggest ever. Yeah. I'm not sure I ever hit over 300 when I was doing a lot of international travel, but wow, that's a bunch. That's a bunch, but enjoyed, uh, you know, every, every mile. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I imagine, I mean, for me, I always enjoyed, when I, I said when I was doing a lot of international travel, I enjoyed being there. It was the getting to and from I wasn't too thrilled about. Well, that's true. But, you know, uh, we just, I don't even pay attention. Let's just put it that way. I just, I sort of just don't pay attention. Yeah. Just sort of meander on a plane, get on a plane, get off a plane. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, you know, it could be worse. I could be driving on the 405 in Southern California, which I would much rather fly somewhere than drive on the 405. <laughs> yeah, and do that, right. Especially if you had no, no way else in the car, you couldn't be in the carpool lane. Not, of course, not that it matters sometimes in LA with the carpool lane. But so uh, we're going to, we're, Got to talk about your new book, Growth Excellent. IQ. So, so tell me a little bit, what was the impetus to write this book? I think it was a combination of a lot of things. You know, ultimately, uh, I had spent a decade at, at Gartner, and now I've been here at Salesforce for three years. And even before Gartner, I was running sales, uh, marketing, and customer service organizations very early in the cloud and, and for four uh, technology companies. And you know, the sort of underlying question as being a sales leader was always like, how do we grow? Mm-hmm. And how do we you know, keep momentum of the business? And how do we grow more than last quarter or last year? And what are the things we could be doing better? And, and how are we going to become smarter using technology to grow the business? It was sort of this series of handful of questions that I consistently either asked myself when I was a leader uh, or clients asked when I was advising. And now here at Salesforce, you know, clients ask pretty consistently. I mean, regardless of whose research you look at, sort of the number one, you know, priority is is growth for you know the CEOs and, and business leaders. And so, it was more of a look. If I could encapsulate this into you know some really great stories and lessons learned from businesses that have been able to uh, recover from a stall in growth or accelerate growth as they're looking for expansion or even just, you know, maintaining the status quo, but growing at market rate, what mm-hmm. would I tell them? Mm-hmm. You know, cause I would get asked the same questions over and over. And so uh, a very dear friend of mine said, you know, I, uh, she's on uh, 
Shark Tank Australia. Her name is Naomi Simpson. She goes, you know, I get stopped on the street all the time. They're like, I got this idea. They're like, how do I pitch it? And what do I need to do? And she goes, so eventually I'm like, yeah, literally I'd get asked 20 times a day. She's saying this. She's like, I just, easiest thing for me to do is write a book <laughs> because then I could just say, read the book. <laughs> so uh, part of it was that. And, and a lot of it was finding these patterns in uh, the high performing companies and what they were doing and big or small, you know, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned for any organization, regardless of industry or region or size. So that was kind of, you know, the, the long answer to, uh, you know, the quick question of what, what made me sort of think about writing the book. <laughs> well, so for those of us, and I have to admit, I'm sort of in this crowd. As you know, I'm very familiar with your work as an analyst, and and so on. Is so, what sort of products were you selling, and who were you selling for? Well, I started out early on uh, selling for a, a legal legal software company that was doing um, sort of bullion searching uh, for big document cases that were mm -hmm. being scanned and coded. And so mm -hmm. instead of a paralegal having to dig through tens of thousands of documents looking for something, it would basically be scanned and coded. And then you could sort of search through those documents. Uh, and this is, you know, early sort of you know, 96, 97-ish. Uh, and when I was working for, I was the only sales rep and, you know, we were doing, you know, hundred thousand a month or something like that. And, and I knew that, you know, it was that dial for dollars. Like I'm going to call a hundred people, 10 going to help me back five, and you know, that sort of sure. grind. And I was reading uh, law technology product news one day, and there was this sort of ad for this value added reseller, which I didn't really know what that was. Uh, and so I read this ad and I'm like, Oh, hold on a second. So like they'll sell our stuff for us. So I like reached out and I said, you know, <laughs> hi, like, how do I get you to sell our stuff? And right. that was sort of my my entry into understanding third-party channels and indirect channel programs. And so I, I convinced the, the CEO and founder at the time to let's go recruit sort of five or 10 of these guys that look like this, and then we can get all their salespeople doing it. And so, of course, we really could 10x the software and the revenue and sort of everything we were doing. And it really flywheeled uh, uh, the growth for the business. And, and I was recruited away and started working for a time-based billing software once again into legal. So I was very deep in a vertical and really learned that vertical. And then I left and went to a value-added reseller selling into the vertical that was selling hardware and software and services mm -hmm. and outsourcing services. And so I got this spectrum in a vertical moving from software to software and hardware to services to you know the full life cycle if you will. Uh, and then we got bought by a distributor um, at the time and I started selling professional services. And then I landed at Sprint, uh, which was random for all kinds of reasons, but they wanted to stand up a professional services organization and said, hey, you, you, know, you know how to do this, why don't you come here? And one of the clients was a uh, client uh, or an investment uh, client for Idealab, which was one of the very sure. first dot-com investment VCs. And I decided that this cloud thing wasn't called that then, right? But the internet, that was kind of interesting and really different for me. And so I wanted to go try that out. And so I started working for a web hosting company. We received you know, 65 million in funding and went out and rolled up a, a bunch of small little hosting mm -hmm. companies who were really pushing the envelope on on what it meant to to get small businesses on the on the web, you know, on buying a domain yes. name, getting a website. I mean, this is 2000. Right. 99, 2001, and two, and then I started working for the largest web hoster in the in the U.S. We were four times the size of Rackspace at the time, 
And ultimately, we were a Loquas beta client. We were Constant Contacts beta client. We were Plesk's beta client. And so we were really at the forefront of things like infrastructure as a service. And it wasn't called that then. We were sort of application service right. provider. And, and I was really fortunate to then run sales marketing and customer service. So I learned a lot about social selling and selling via chat and phone and then how to use customer service as another sales engine and how do you scale 10 people, you know, and search engine optimization and banner ads. I mean, we owned the word web hosting for like five bucks. Now, which you company know, was this? This was Interland, which oh, is yeah. now, okay. by, which is now, by the way, web.com. Right. So it's web.com and our dedicated business became Pier One. And then a lot of our uh, intellectual property was was picked up by by other uh, by other web firms. Um, but that was super early. And so it, it gave it sort of indoctrinated me into you know selling via subscription services and you know online and no field sales, no face-to-face -face sales mm -hmm. in a really hot industry, more importantly, about what people didn't really understand. So you really had to teach them. Uh, and then I and then uh, uh, when the transition happened between Airland and web.com, I left and and was uh, hired by Gateway Computers to stand up a division for them for indirect selling which they had never had before. They had closed the stores right. and wanted to sell through partners. And so they brought me on board um, to, to sort of stand that up. And I was there until uh, Gateway broke to half the business to Acer and half the business to Micron PC. And mm -hmm. then I landed it. Then I landed at Gartner. And so I didn't know my path, you know, looking back when I was at Gartner, I looked back and said, what's great about this is that I understand selling software and hardware and services and cloud. I've worked in distribution and telco and, you know, and not that I've run, had run you know, multi-billion dollar divisions. It was just that I had experienced it as a rep, you know, as an AE, quote, yep. a bearing, yep. but also a leader. And so it gave me this very unique practitioner's perspective at Gartner. And I think that gave me a leg up against... Um, other analysts that may have uh, just been sort of more academic on on those particular topics, right? And which is what you know, we encounter that, mostly, and that's mostly what you encounter. And and so I, I had I was able to understand sort of the little subtleties of doing things. Uh, and so you know who knew ten you know ten years later I I was a research fellow and really pushing the envelope on on the future of sales and and really the digital impact to the way companies will. Uh, integrate sales marketing and service and and then salesforce offered me something that i just couldn't resist and uh so i you know now i have this wonderful opportunity to uh sort of balance two things you know it's a i get to travel around the world and meet with clients and 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 hear and learn all the wonderful things they're doing but i also get to work with clients that are trying to figure out their way forward and so um, once again it, it all kind of led to this book, uh, Growth IQ, but more importantly, it's it's sort of a combination of my own experience and then, you know, all the thousands of conversations I've had, you know, over 25 years. Okay, well, let's, let's jump to the book. I mean, that's a great, I'm glad we got that background. I mean, so, because I think it's, as I mentioned before, it's sort of unusual for, for analysts to have been a, a practitioner to the extent you were, at least my experience. Um, so, and it's always sort of like talking to a, an academic who's studied sales, but never really done it. Um, yeah, so the con constant theme throughout the book is that, yeah, this, this whole idea of growth is really hard. You know, it's, it's not, it's not something you can take for given. 
Yeah, I, I would tell you that, you know, one of the very first quotes uh, in the book is growth and comfort uh, never coexist from Ginny Rometty, who right. is the CEO of IBM. And that really set the frame for the whole book because I, one of the number one things I would hear is uh, from a client is, look, we're, we're really struggling in this quarter. Like we have to end the quarter strong. What's the one thing we can do? Like, should I spend more marketing dollars? Should I hire more salespeople? Should we cut costs? Right. They, it would be the same dials would get turned. And I learned early on that it was never just one thing. And that really began this whole thought process for Growth IQ, which was the one thing about growth is it's never one thing. And that if you're comfortable, even if you're growing now, so for those of you listening, right, if you have a, a, you know, a sales team or a company that's growing and you're listening to this, you're going to go, I don't have a problem. This is the time to actually invest in where you think you need to be one, two years from now, because when you're coming from a place of strength of we are growing, this is the time to pilot and test things because if they don't work, we're not betting the business on it. Because if you're already starting to feel a stall and you're trying to make a course correction, it's a lot more risky because you don't have the additional capital to make those investments. Things are slowing down. Mm -hmm. You may have to actually cut costs. Morale might be lower. You know, All of the things are working against you versus trying to do it from a place uh, of strength. Well, that seems to be sort of an issue that you oftentimes see with with startups. At least my experience of of this is that there's a sort of assumption. It's like, yeah, we're going really great now. It's going to continue, as opposed to what you just talked about. Is yeah, it's going really great now, but maybe we've had some great good fortune. We sort of hit a moment or something, but yeah, moments don't last. Yeah, and I would tell you that that it's not only that it doesn't last. Um, but those that I've learned that are very successful are the ones that constantly have this kind of canary in the coal mine where you have a quarter that's really strong, another quarter that's really strong, you know, and then you have a quarter that's a little softer, but still strong. And then another quarter that's a little softer than the last quarter, but still strong, but it's going slightly in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you were growing at 10% and you were growing at 11%, then 9%, then 10%, then 7% then eight, then six, then seven, right? You're still growing, but you're not going 10, 11, 12, 13, right? You're going, you're still growing, but you're, you're growing less. And maybe not and, even keeping pace with your market. And maybe not even keeping pace with your market. But when it goes, you know, two or three quarters of, of either flat, no growth, or uh, a decline, even slight, is where you need to start to go, hold on a second you know, something's going on, is our marketing not as effective, or our sales teams, you know, what's, what is causing whatever's happening? Uh, and many companies make the mistake that they look externally, like what's happening in the market that's causing us not to grow. Uh, and there was a great study by Bain looking across the industry, and the CEOs, you know, were, were great in the research in saying that like 90 or 95% of the issues that they were facing were actually internal, not external when it came to growth. And so that tends to be uh, a, an area for improvement where when you start to see things start to slow down, to look inward first. Like, mm -hmm. Can we optimize what we're doing? Do we have the right tools in place? Do we have the right, you know, it's a people process issue. And, and then once you've exhausted that, then you can go, okay, now what's happening externally? I mean, unless you're in a highly regulated industry where you have no control over regulations changing that completely disrupt your, your market, that's different. There are always outliers. So anyone listening goes, oh, I don't, 
buy what she did. There are always outliers, but sure. in the mean, in the mean, um, you know, it, you have to be willing to pay attention that you cannot just brush off a quarter or two of softness as just an anomaly. You need to really dig into why it's happening so that you can get ahead of it. Because if you're in a full-blown growth stall, there's research out there that shows that some 80% of companies will go through a growth stall in some point in their lives, right? Quote, mm -hmm. unquote. And only a small percentage recovers. Well, and that's well, because- Well, I read that. So what, yeah. what did you mean by recover though? Because I mean- I mean, obviously, companies go through that and a high fraction survive, but you mean recover to robust growth again? Yeah, to yes, to robust growth. And a lot of that has to do with what I was just describing, that if you're in a stall, then you're in defense mode. You may mm -hmm. have to be, right, you're cutting back marketing spend. Well, if you're cutting back marketing spend, it's impacting leads. If it's impacting yeah. leads, sales, right. And so once you start to cut anything, you're, you're coming from a place of, well, so how do you recover if you're cutting? And so that's why if you're growing and you're growing well, that this is the time to invest. So even if you stumble, you course correct, you can fix it. You're always going to be coming back to a place of you're still growing. But if you get into, you know, four to six quarters of no growth or declining growth, uh, that's considered. So you're, you are in a full-blown growth stall. Yeah, well, there, and I think there are two really interesting points in there that you, that you talk about. One is, is that when you're looking at internal events as being sort of the things that are, are dictating whether your growth is continuing, is those, those are things you have control over. And you mentioned that, and you write about that. As you say, you know, what a shame it is, you know, after all, it's the internal factors over which you're supposed to have control as opposed to move by your competitors and market shifts or black swan events. So and I think that's really critical. And this is, you know, we think about it also with a more narrow sales focus. And at times when I see salespeople having troubles, it's because, again, they're looking externally as opposed to saying, well, what are the things that I have control over that I can dictate, that I can, that I, the levers I can move that will make a difference? Yeah, and, and I say this often, and I get mixed results on what I'm about to say, but you know, I feel like, you know, once again, as a recovering seller, which <laughs> I like to call myself. Is there such a uh, thing? Yeah, it, no, really. Well, yes, because we're constantly, you know, if you don't carry a quota anymore, it's like you sort of yearn to have the quota again, and then, you know, so. Until they give it to you, yes, but yeah, go ahead. Right, yep. <laughs> um, so it is that... I believe there's one thing a sales rep can control and only one thing. So as a rep, I'm talking an individual quota carrying account executive. Mm -hmm. I don't get to pick my quota. Nope. <laughs> That's for sure. I don't get to pick. Usually I don't get to pick the territory I'm selling into or the vertical I'm selling into. Um, I don't get to pick the tools I'm using. Usually, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't get to pick what I do every day, you know, it's call a hundred people. Like this is what I measured on. I don't design my own comp plan. <laughs> I, you know, I don't, you know, pick my, how to do a pipeline review, you know, sort of et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. The one thing I can control is my, my behavior in front of a client, whether that's on the phone, in an email or face to face. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's, you know, how can sales reps be a student of their profession? And it's, I cover this a little bit in my sales optimization chapter that, you know, back to what you were saying, it's like, what can I do to help course correct personally? Because all that other stuff I can't control. I can make suggestions. I can work with my, you know, my manager and try to change some things around to see if things will work. But at the end of the day, if I can 
do things personally. And so maybe that means I need to know my vertical better so I can overcome objections better. Does it mean I, you know, learn the tools, how to maximize their usage and especially around things like artificial intelligence, like, you know, can I make it work for me versus feeling like it's working against me? You know, can I um, be smarter about who I'm talking to and what I'm, what information I'm giving or how I'm leveraging social selling or social mm -hmm. media or platforms like those things you can control. Uh, and, and if, if everybody did that as a sales rep versus saying, I've always done it this way, I'm always going to continue to do it this way. Uh, then I think there's huge opportunity for improvement. And I think along the same lines though, is, is as long as their sales reps are sort of just putting their heads down and saying, well, the company told me this is what I should be doing in front of customers, and this is the process we use. This is the methodology. Instead of taking the bull by the horns and taking responsibility for the behavior in front of customers and and optimize it for whom they are, then they're not going to grow either. Absolutely, and and I'd say you know I think one of the hardest roles today, and I, I'd love you know I wish I could see people's faces when I say this right, but I think one of the hardest roles today is actually that middle sales management layer. Because an individual quota bearing rep is, you know, sort of saying upstream, right? This isn't working, like this, the at, you know, the leads aren't good, whatever they're saying, mm. right? So sales manager has to manage down, meaning I don't mean that looking down, I mean right. managing down into their team, right? But also the manager has to manage up. Well, my manager is telling me, you know, your team should be calling a thousand people a day and, and driving, you know, X amount of pipe per week and you know, Y amount <laughs> of right. So the manager is squeezed between the the you know the face to face customer facing AEs who actually know what's going on right <laughs> uh, and and they're getting squeezed between the reality and the process from above and so they're squeezed between I'm managing up and down and then you know that sales manager's manager is doing the same thing because you know they're managing down and up depending how large of an organization you are and so it's this you're caught between the front line that you know is saying it's just not working and then management telling upper management it's just not working and upper management going well we cannot disrupt the apple cart because that's where we earn our revenue so if you're going to do something that might impact sales and then it then it's an issue well here's a question for you this is this is sort of out of left field a little bit but it you know through driven a little bit by your your chapter on optimizing sales and and productivity is you know, in certain segments, especially more in the SaaS business, so on, there's these ideas, you know, we have to have 5x pipeline coverage to get our certain amount of revenue and so on. And I look at the way many companies are doing that, and I see that it's really kind of wasteful, right? The quality of the prospects they're putting at the top of the funnel just in order to hit their pipeline coverage aren't, aren't really very good. Is what if, what if the challenge was to go to a SaaS company and say, look, yeah, here's your revenue target. It's the same. But I don't want to see more than 2x pipeline coverage, meaning I want you to get better prospects, do a better job of qualifying and close a much higher fraction of them. Yeah, you know, I, well, customer centricity is one of those things that sales gets really uncomfortable. And it's specifically the sales managers because they're like, okay, we're going to become more customer centric of an organization. What does that mean to me? How do I, how, much, how do I like train that? How do I measure it? How do I manage it? Like, how do I hold people accountable for it? And, and that really seems to be one of the big challenges. Um, the first chapter in the book is customer experience. And I talk about this, mm -hmm. that, you know, if you, if, if being 
sort of customer centric is one thing. A customer experience is sort of the outcome of how customer centric you are. But in Salesforce research two years ago, customer experience was one of the number one metrics that was starting to bubble up for salespeople. And now just one year later, it became customer satisfaction. And in my opinion, the reason that happened is because CSAT is much easier to measure because you can get a CSAT score or customer experience is, is one of those soft metrics. And so right. whether you're, if you're tracking net promoter score, maybe you have an opportunity to sort of do that. But then how do you tell an individual quota bearing rep that they're going to be held responsible for net promoter score across the whole company and that that may be a lever for them for an accelerator on, you know, compensation. And they're like, well, like I'm a little gnat, you know, on the whole grand right. scheme of net promoter score right. versus saying like in my customer base, what's the satisfaction? That's a little bit easier to measure. Um, but I think this goes back to, uh, you know, how sales reps can actually control, but, you know, someone much smarter than I has said, you know, that, that your customers will only be happy as your employees. And so making sure that sales uh, feels empowered to do what's right for the customer. If you're going to, as an executive, lead out and say, we're going to be more customer centric and we're leading with customer experience. But Mr. Sales Rep, I want you to call 100 people today. It's like, well, hold on. Do you yes. want me to call 10 people and have really meaningful, valuable conversations? Right. Or do you want me to churn through 100? Because those are two very different things. So going back to that squeezed layer, right, of the manager in the middle who's like, executives going, it's all about customer experience. Sales rep is going, well, if it's about customer experience and don't tell, and, and right, it's all about customer experience, call a thousand people today. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that's the yeah. thing is this is, we've got these contradictory impulses. And I think that there's sort of a level of, it's like a, to me, it's like a security blanket because yeah, a lot of companies sort of figured out the formula that we know, right. We know what our ratios are. We know if we're going to you know, make a thousand calls, we'll generate, you know, a hundred prospects and we'll close 20 of those. And but it's, I've, I'm always amazed when I talk to, yeah, sort of middle tier and sometimes even, you know, CRO level at, at smaller companies, this idea about, well, okay, instead of being in love with the 5X pipeline coverage, as I said, let's let's make it 3X and just do a better job of qualifying and closing. It's That makes them really nervous. In fact, they don't even think about it in that regard most of the times because they're just so, they know this is, yeah, this is predictable. Yeah, absolutely. But, it, but it's and, not good. It's predictable, but it's not good. Correct. And and this, you know, and, and going back to your original question, you know, I these can some these questions you're asking me in this conversation we're having can almost paralyze people around where do I even begin? Mm -hmm. You know, so I feel like we're starting to slow down in growth. What is it that I'm not doing? What should I be doing? Where do I start? We're growing really well. I want to keep it going. Where do I start? What are the things we have been doing that have been working in the past that are not going to be working 12 to 24 months from now? How do I replace those things? Where do I start? And you know, I coined this term seller's dilemma many years ago, which was a play on Clayton Christensen's right. innovator's dilemma. And the reason I said it is because as a sales leader, the dilemma is how do I change the tires on a car going around the track 100 miles an hour? Exactly. And the car going around the track at 100 miles an hour is revenue. And I, you know, no CEO is going to go, let's do a, you know, three month pit stop, earn no revenue, and let's fix everything. No. It's not going to happen, right? Nope. And you, you, if you think of, if any, you know, if you watch, you know, formula racing, like, you know, you, you're, or NASCAR, or whatever, that you pull over and, you know, you have a pit stop that's like, you know, whatever, six seconds. And, and we're going to change all the tires and change the oil and get back on the track. 
And so think about that as a sales leader, like how, how much time can I take to pull over and think about what do I need to change? Number one, number two, how much time, you know, how much of my mental capacity am I going to take out of my day to give myself that pit stop to say, Hey, what's the canary? What's changing? Mm -hmm. What doesn't look the way it, and then let me test some things while at the same time cars going around the track. And so that's why I coined that the dilemma, the seller's dilemma, because it is not an easy thing to overcome. So as a sales leader, you know, you really have to think about carving time out of your days to set aside to say, I'm just going to look at the business from the inside. Could we doing anything better, smarter, faster? What's not working anymore? What could we, what's really working that we could double down on? You know, all of those things. And if you don't have the time to do it and you have a large enough organization, I suggest that you hire somebody who is sort of your strategy arm, who's constantly watching the data and what is it telling you and how can you consistently do those little pit stops to get everybody to go, okay, that's not working anymore. Boom, we're going to try this. And But the whole team um, has to understand why they're doing it. And so uh, the other side of the innovator's dilemma conversation for me was about if you're going to do this and you're going to try some of the, you know, examples I just gave, where you had a strategy person, you're going to try new things. You also have to have a culture that's willing um, and able and rewarded for innovating, even if it's failing. Right. So, uh, you know, innovation cannot happen if a culture does not reward. Uh, and I don't mean, you know, catastrophic failure, obviously, but like that campaign didn't work. Let's try another one. Like people don't lose their job because the campaign didn't work. Or we tried something where we were only calling out the 10 people instead of 100 people. Don't do it with all your sales reps. Grab a couple of them, try it there. You know, so, you know, you have to have a culture where people are willing to bring ideas and bubble them up as well as, you know, being rewarded for, for the, uh, you know, activities that in fact actually work. You know, and I think that's, I, I label that the difference between a selling culture and a sales culture. You know, selling culture is just heads down. You know, we've got this formula. It's not terribly effective or efficient, but it's predictable. We know it's going to generate a certain amount, but we're just heads down. We're just doing it, right? <laughs> to me, that's like a selling culture. But sales culture is just as you described. You know, how do we how do we keep our eyes open about how we can become better? Constantly look at how we can become more productive for every hour of selling time we spend to generate more revenue. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so, uh, look, this isn't easy, you know, for the sales managers no. listening, you know, this is a personal uh, challenge to you as sales managers to say, how do I manage up and down, enable and empower my people to try things? How do I carve time out of my day to, you know, watch what's happening internally and anticipate potentially something that's around the corner? Um, how do I, uh, you know, manage then up the food chain to sort of share what I'm learning and showing that we're trying things and what's working and what's not working. Uh, that's, that's a challenge. And then for individual sales reps, uh, you know, really taking the opportunity to uh, share things you're learning that you think may work better. And, and how do you actually present that in a way? Uh, and this is really hard, not from a place of an emotional, like I'm not going to hit my number because mm. you know, the leads are junk and uh, like you have to come back and go, look, over the last three months, I've really noticed that the quality of leads has gone down. And so I dug into it and I noticed that from this particular source, the leads were always, always, always terrible. 
So maybe we can let marketing know that those aren't the great, or should we ask other people on the team? Are they seeing the same thing? Like you need to come forward, um, you know, with not just the problem statement, but a potential solution and how you can, you know, find a way forward. And I think, you know, that's where uh, you have to really flex your um, confidence, if you will, to, to find a way forward. Yeah. And I think along with that is, is also, cause we, you know, you stated very, very well, this idea about what sellers can control is their behavior in front of prospects and buyers is that for me is, is there's a certain amount of courage involved with, with top producers to sort of, you know, they, they break the rules a little bit, right? I mean, there's certain process methods set out, but, but they're saying, look, I, I can do things differently and better. And what I find too often now is, is sellers sort of waiting to get permission to do that as opposed to just begging for forgiveness, <laughs> which I yeah. really think is what you need to do. Yeah. And so, you know, this is not my research, but Mike Bosworth, who uh, sure. basically is the grandfather of solution selling. And Mike and I uh, had a whole conversation. Uh, it had to be maybe eight years ago. And he, his most recent book, he talks about this as well, where you sort of have this middle group of sales reps um, that are just very process driven. Like, tell me where to go, tell me what to do, tell me what tools to use. And I'm just going to follow the process because I know if I call a hundred, 20 will call me back. You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I'm just going to work the process. And that tends to be the 60, about 65%, according to his work, 65% of the sales force, two words, fall in that category. As a sales leader, Unfortunately, people tend to pivot towards the high performers. Like, how do I replicate more of them? How do I train those, you know, the 65% to behave more like the by, by the 15% and the high performer? And it doesn't have to do with quota attainment. It has everything to do with what you were just saying. Like this internal understanding and personality of I'm just going to go for it. And, you know, where uh, so it it, it has somewhat to do with quota, but a lot to do with just the behavior of that particular kind of sales rep. Mm -hmm. And so for me, uh, you know, if, if I were still running a sales team, I would never pilot things with my top performers. And I would also almost never ask them their opinion of what I think we should do because their perspective is so unique and you really don't want to disrupt them. Right. Where, where you have your greatest leverage is in that 65%. And if you can improve quota attainment, two to 5% in the middle, it's huge. And huge. I don't care if you have five people or 5,000, ultimately moving that two to five. So now let's go back to, you know, once again, I'm trying to optimize. I'm trying to improve performance. I'm trying to continue to grow. Let the high performers hit 100, 105, 110%. I, I, maybe I could get another percent out of them. But if I can focus on, you know, according to CSO research, you, know, you still are in the um, low 60% are, are achieving quota. That number has been flat or going down for going the last down. five years, right. even though all these tools and advancements are coming along. And our research shows, uh, you know, some 60% of a salesperson's time is spent on non-selling activities. Mm -hmm. So if you just focus on those two things, <laughs> non-selling activities, and how do I improve quota in that middle, you as a sales leader will be a hero. Now you just have to figure out how to do it. And the answer to that goes back to the book. The one thing is, it's never one thing. If yep. you asked me the question, I couldn't answer. I would come back and say to you, what's the context of your market, which is really the premise of my book. I can't answer until I understand the context of your market, your customer set, your offering, et cetera. What things do you have to do in combination 
So it's not just optimize sales, but it could be expanded to new markets or make partnerships. The second leg of the stool for Growth IQ is combining multiple activities. And then the third thing is in which order? Are you going to roll out to an entirely new market before you've even hired sales reps and trained them? Probably not, but you'd be surprised how many people do that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, the book was really a framework by which if you're really trying to tackle some of these things that Andy and I are talking about, that regardless of whether you're an individual contributor, first-time manager, line manager, executive, you will get something out of it because there's 30 case studies that walk you through all kinds of companies in different sizes and different industries and points in time where they were at a critical crossroads to make a decision about growth, what they, what they decided, why they decided it, and what the result is. And uh, I guarantee you, you will learn something out of one of those case studies. Yeah, and I'll back that up. As I, it's a great book, and everybody should uh, should pick it up and read it. So, unfortunately, Tiffany, we're out of time, but um, it's been a blast as always. So, so tell folks how they can find out more about what you're doing. Well, they can go to uh, uh, LinkedIn. They can follow me there. They can follow me on Twitter at Tiffany underscore Bova, uh, or they can pick up the book Growth IQ at at uh, re- retail establishments, so Barnes and Nobles and independent bookstores around the country as well as online, and it's going to be uh, launching in the UK and Commonwealth here at the uh, end of February. And then it continues its sort of road trip around the globe um, and launching in the middle and the end of 19 in four four other countries, and then in 20, it'll come in out in two. Um, But I speak often, so if you, you know, you hear this and, and you, I love to hear when people disagree because it helps shape how I say things the next time, or it even changes the way I was thinking about things. So I love Absolutely. feedback uh, other, either way. Yeah, it's, I always, <laughs> when I wrote my books, as someone asked me, I remember after the first one, they said, what's your book about? And I was like, I thought I knew, but then I published it and I learned it was about something else. So <laughs> that feedback from users and readers is very important. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, could, I couldn't agree more. All right, Tiffany, thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm super so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank Tiffany Bova for sharing her wisdom with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review and let us know how we're doing, we'd appreciate it. You can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thank you for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.